0: Hello everybody, I'm Jean Ladding. Do you know people who are afraid to speak up in the workplace or any place for that matter? You're about to meet Dan Olsreich, who is about to shed light on what to say to someone, especially people in the workplace, yet you are afraid to say it. Dan wrote two books about this topic, The first is drive fear out of the workplace. And the second is called the courageous messenger. He graduated from Yale University as an undergrad and has a master's in counseling from the University of Colorado. He now shares his knowledge and skills as a coach, facilitator, trainer. I was really excited when I found out about The Courageous Messenger and knew I wanted him to be on this podcast. He accepted,
1: and here he is.
0: Hello, Dan.
1: Hello, Jean, it's so nice to be here.
0: I am so delighted you accepted the invite. I remember seeing the cover of your book, Driving the Fear Out of the Workplace, thinking, oh no, that's not possible. That's That's not possible so then I saw you did the courageous messenger. Yes. And so I'd like you to talk about both.
1: Okay. Okay. Well. um, So there I was working in a in a city government in what was the personnel department this was before the term human resources even was popular. and. Uh, the uh, city got sued in a sexual harassment case, I was very interested in training, found a trainer named Kathy Ryan, and together we started training managers on sexual harassment in the workplace and uh, how to avoid it and what to do about it and how to build better relationships with staff so you would hear about it. At about the same time, I happened to read an article called Skilled Incompetence. Yeah. Said, Skilled uh, Incompetence.
0: Chris Argis.
1: Chris Argyris, and he mentioned the term undiscussables. Love it. Yeah, so Kathleen and I decided sometime after our work together at the city that we would write a book about undiscussables and how to overcome them. And so we interviewed 260 people in 22 organizations and uh, all different kinds of organizations and all different kinds of jobs and people. And we, from that, developed a kind of, well, not only a, a framework for thinking about it, but a real sensitivity to the issues that people were dealing with. So that's kind of where this whole process of speaking up began. It's what is it that people might be talking about in the hallways, cafeterias, uh, out in the parking lot that they would not bring to people who could actually do something about the problems they were most concerned with?
0: All right, so let's go back to the beginning, the sexual harassment. Yes. You're probably aware that the research says that sexual harassment training often backfires. Yeah. Because the guys say, oh, if this is what's gonna happen, I'm not going to ever report it.
1: Yeah, that's right. 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 Did, you,
0: did you have any of that experience?
1: We didn't, the, the program that Kathleen set up was really uh, thorough. And there was a lot of follow through. It was some initial training, but then a lot of discussions and training internal leaders in every department to be sensitive to the issues and serve as advocates. So uh, it was a different experience. And I think the one other thing that was going on was that because the city had been sued and it was publicized broadly, there was a financial fee and it was a complicated case that not only involved a supervisor and employee but the attitudes of staff after this had all gone down that were in play so i think we did pretty good on that score what i will tell you is that as an entrance to the training profession standing up in front of 25 different groups of supervisors was amazing and All the negative attitudes, all the bad beliefs, all the crazy stuff was right there in our face. And I had to learn to respond to that and go right into it and not shirk uh, a responsibility to deal with the way uh, people felt and believed uh, at that time.
0: So what I suspect then is y'all did extensive training with follow through of a period of time, not a one half hour or hour. That's not training.
1: Yeah. Yeah, The training
0: is that backfire. I want to be
1: (laughs) clear about that. Yeah.
0: Yes. The the one shot backfire.
1: Yeah. Well, the, 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 the short term, you know, half an hour thing I think is just enough to raise people's prejudices around this topic and stereotypes, yes, uh, and not enough to begin to actually address what need what needed to be addressed. So, uh, without going into a lot of detail, I will say that that training was at least a day long for supervisors, and there was lots of follow up for everybody, uh, and lots of of uh, endorsement from top leadership.
0: Oh, that's was, critical.
1: Yeah, was critical, and also a vision, which I think is very critical around this stuff—a vision of the kind of relationships we ought to have in the workplace, and that was really meaningful.
0: Okay, so you said all the junk. You said that you know you had to stand up and face all the negativity, and yeah. all. Can you make that real concrete? And because I'm sure it hasn't changed since then.
1: Too much. Well, well, people would ask questions. For example, uh, one I remember, because it, it, it was meant to be funny but wasn't funny at all, is we were talking about dress codes and should uh, a supervisor intervene if a person was not following that dress code? And uh, so one of the supervisors in the room he looked at me and he said are you saying that for example if an attractive woman looks too buttoned up i should tell her to unbutton her her blouse i mean in a group of 20 supervisors it's hard to imagine anybody going there so You know, what I had to do was instead of staying where I was at the front of a classroom environment, actually walk up to this guy to have a dialogue about it. And we did have a little dialogue about it. What? Oh, you know,
0: I don't remember
1: very very much, but it was probably because this is a long, long time ago now. But I think I probably said, I don't think that's right. And I think, you know, it
0: whoa, so you probably went there and
1: just, yeah yeah we don't do this. We don't do this I mean I had I remember another time because we walked through a vision for uh, the way relationships should be at, in city government. We walked through that and somebody highly placed in the organization raised his hands and he says, Dan is this is this the vision for the city? That you got from the city manager, or is this just your vision?
0: Just what yours?
1: Your vision, yeah. Because that would have discredited to discount it, and yeah. you know the fact was we had sat down with the city manager at the time and said this is what we want to share. This is the vision that we think is in the right direction, and he added some things to it, and it was great. So I that was an easy one to reply to. Okay.
0: So what's the vision with fast forward to 2020 yeah. because I can't imagine it's going to be too much different now than it was yeah. two years ago or 40 years ago or what have you. People, what's the vision that people should be aiming for?
1: Well, I'll tell you the word I like these days is dignity, is that we should be treating each other in a way that uh, reinforces dignity of whoever you are. There's a wonderful book that I think actually, in some ways, extends, supersedes, driving fear out of the workplace by a woman named Donna Hicks uh, who did work around the world in reconciliation with Desmond Tutu. And uh, she identifies in very straightforward, simple terms, what's dignity look like? And what are the temptations that take us away from dignity? In our relationship building work,
0: what and are the temptations?
1: Let me let me get the book here. Okay. I'll tell you. All and right. and what's interesting about the temptations that she re- relates uh, is that uh, you know when you talk about what does dignity look like, almost everybody agrees. Oh yeah, that's what we already do. But when you get to the temptations, <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> when you get to the temptations, they go, oh no, that isn't really yet. <laughs> her her 10 temptations to violate dignity are taking the bait saving face shirking responsibility seeking false dignity which is about uh just looking for approval uh seeking false security so if you feel like you have a relationship that's enough avoiding conflict being a victim, resisting feedback, blaming and shaming others to deflect your own guilt, engaging in false intimacy and demeaning gossip—those are the ten. it. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful list. I've I've used this book a number of times in groups that I've worked with, and, and uh, everybody adores it. I mean, it's just such a clear, succinct, right-on statement. Do you want to hear what the 10 characterizations of dignity are i think they're i think they're cool the first is acceptance of identity accepting the identity of other people the second is inclusion the third is safety the fourth is acknowledgement acknowledging people the fifth is is recognition validating other people for their their talents hard work and so forth fairness giving people the benefit of the doubt, uh, understanding, working to understand, uh, independence, uh, encouraging people to act on their own behalf and accountability. So uh, if you haven't got this one, I, I really encourage you to get it. It's, it's uh, again by Donna Hicks and the subtitle is, uh, It's Essential Role in Resolving Conflict.
0: It's essential, of, Dign- is the name of the book Dignity?
1: Dignity, it's essential role in resolving conflict. Wow. Yeah, it was written in 2011. She has a follow-up book leading with dignity, but I always encourage people to get this one first and then get that one, yeah.
0: Okay, so. Um,
1: so that was the vision.
0: Yes, so uh, you've laid out the vision. So the vision is to treat each other with dignity. So I want to go to one aspect that she mentioned, and that yes. is identity. Let's talk about identity, because okay. I was surprised that she had that as the first one. Yes. You know, there is a lot of debate now about the role of identity in the, in the workplace. And should we ad- get rid of all identities and just see each other colorblind? We don't know, you know, we're all just the human race. Yeah. What does she mean about identity and how do you interpret it?
1: Well, I I think, uh, and, and you know, I haven't talked to her, so I don't know, but I what I do believe is that her sense of the importance of identity and its relationship to conflict is unless you feel ex- accepted, deeply accepted, for the identity that you have or that you own that you identify with. You're not going to get very far in building dignity into a relationship. It's just a crucial element. That
0: gave me goosebumps. That is yeah. totally cool. If I think of identity in terms of resolving conflict, of course I have to my who I define myself as being has to be accepted.
1: That's right. That's right. So that's, to me, that's just a really powerful part. And you think of somebody who was involved in reconciliation uh, work around the world and thinking about the tough situations where there's been violence in relationships over time uh, and, you know, all these differences that collude to create enormous amounts of mistrust and then violence. How could you possibly get to any kind of Resolution without acceptance of identity. I just don't think it's possible.
0: Oh, this is fabulous! I I had never ever put the two together yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a there's a poem that I kind of live by, and if you're uh, willing, I will share the first verse. I'm ready. And uh, with you, let me just get it up in front of me. It's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other by William Stafford. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others make may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. Wow,
0: that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, the rest Wait, of the one poem, more time. We did one more
0: yes. time so We can absorb it.
1: If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong god home, we may miss our star. To me, that's kind of the core here of a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about creating a workplace where people really can thrive, is finding our star. And we can't do that unless we know, you know, I need to know you, you need to know me. And a big part of that is the acceptance of identity and doing all those other things that that Donna Hicks talked about and avoiding all those uh temptations that we run into every day i mean i can i can tell you that in so many times when i've worked with individuals or groups and i read the list of temptations people go oh yeah taking the bait i do that all the time
0: <laughs> okay so this is a long long-lived question i'm about to ask you ever since yeah. i saw the c- cover of your book yeah. is it possible to drive the fear out of the workplace
1: yeah it's such a great question it's a wonderful question it's the sort of question i think you live your whole life trying to answer
0: <laughs> That's what I, been long. I, I, even, I am so delighted i get the chance to ask the author of the book this question that I've held in my head yeah. since I first saw the cover yeah. decades ago.
1: Yeah, is it even possible? And the title of the book you know, comes from work by a kind of a guru in the uh, time of the quality movement, W. Edwards Deming, who had yeah. different uh, kind of maxims to change management. And one of them was Drive Out Fear. Oh,
0: that's right. It was. Deming did say that. Yeah,
1: yes. And at the time that we were writing that book, it was very popular, and we wanted to align our organization development work and coaching work with what Deming was saying. If I had to rename the book today.
0: Thank you. That was my question.
1: (laughs) It would be Driving Mistrust Out of the Workplace or Building Trust in the Workplace. Uh, Mistrust is actually, I think, closer to the actual. Thing we're working with. Um, mistrust is a form of fear. There's no question about that. But I like mistrust because I think it's based so heavily on negative beliefs and stereotypes about other people. It's easier to relate those negative stereotypes and how they affect people to mistrust than fear outright, Gene. I mean, that's my personal view okay. of how that works.
0: Okay, so let me, let's me let keep going with this. Because okay. I wonder if you can have trust in the workplace.
1: Yeah. Knowing
0: it's, that I can be fired, knowing that the business can drop, yeah. lose clients, and I can be let go. Yeah. What does trust mean anyway?
1: Yes. And, you know, I talked to Amy Edmondson, who created the term psychological safety. Right. She prefers that title because mistrust has just too many layers to it. You know, am I trusting in external conditions like you're talking about to protect my job? Do I trust my supervisor? Do I trust my coworkers? It's just a whole lot of different stuff. But I like trust. I like working with it, even though it's ambiguous. And the answer to that is some of it we can overcome. Can we overcome every speck of mistrust? Probably not because life is the way it is and external conditions are the way they are. We probably can't get rid of every bit of it, but we can sure as heck work on our relationships so that we don't have mistrust clouding uh, what's going on. And by clouding, I mean we rely on our negative beliefs about other people to justify our competition with one another our need for superiority, our, you know, all those things that are a salve for feeling insecure.
0: Okay. You know, as I was thinking, I'm a researcher. And so I know the opposite of hot is not cold. The opposite of hot is not hot. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm listening, I'm, I'm debating in my head. I'm thinking, miss, the absence of mistrust the opposite of that is not trust. No, it isn't. So the, there's mistrust. Oh, it's a neutral and, and zone. The absence of, yes, it's a neutral thing. And yeah. I, can, I can live more easily with overcoming mistrust than I can with enabling trust. Yeah. If yeah. that makes any sense.
1: Well, you know, here's what I've noticed in real terms. If I'm working with somebody who's got a negative belief about another person, coworker, boss, you know, uh, 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 somebody who work reports to them. If I can help that person uh, challenge their belief, like, do you, in fact, really know this?
0: Right.
1: How do you know it? And what's the evidence? Can right. I get to this neutral place? And if if, you know, if a person begins to ask themselves that, things can begin to change radically i might decide to build a bridge you know one of the aspects of that is in challenging is creating what uh somebody called kind of a, a a workable position in being with another person if i hold on to my negative beliefs about other people without much evidence of that i'm in an unworkable place i cannot create a relationship
0: and then i'm into uh confirmation bias
1: that's right so
0: they do confirms that i shouldn't trust them in the first place
1: that's right that's right. But if you can move to a more neutral place, ask what other explanations might there be for this behavior. Right. You know? And and that's, you know, all by itself can be an enormous challenge for us because we love our belief systems. We just adore them. Yes. And they're very, <laughs> very hard.
0: <laughs> one of my clients one time was t- trying to explain to me why she was uh, upset with her boss and thought he was a jerk. And then I said, she said, but I can't tell you. I said, why? She said, because you're just going to ask me, what's the evidence? And I I don't have any evidence. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I, said, <laughs> I said, you're working hard to hang on to it. She says, yes, you're going to ask me, what's the evidence? And I don't have any evidence.
1: Right. And then we can use that, I think, to kind of begin to open up the issue of what does it mean to speak up across that boundary where there is not a lot of trust. And that's that's very problematic. I think that's what uh, Kathleen and I and her husband George did with uh, Courageous Messenger is try to figure out a way for people to think about speaking up without their being necessarily a high trust relationship to begin with.
0: Whoa. So, OK, I was just,
1: I'm, I'm <laughs>
0: I was about to, let's hold that. Let me do what okay. I want to All do. Right. Yeah. This is so cool. I don't want to lose that. Um, Say that again, because I don't want to lose it.
1: Well, I think that what uh, we authors did with Courageous Messenger, is try to figure out a way to help people feel more comfortable speaking up without there already being a very supportive, trust-based relationship.
0: Okay, there we go. So let's hang on to that. Yeah. And I now wanna do a detour and ask you, why did you get into all of this in the first place?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I think in my life over time, because of my origins or where I come from, there were some strong threads of alienation, uh, would be the word I would use. Feeling different from other people.
0: Be real concrete. You were this and they were that.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's if I take it all the way back to original stuff, in, in my family, I was the kid who loved poetry. <laughs> Still do and um, enjoyed being in nature just because it was nature. And that didn't really fit very well in the rural family that I was part of. And the other piece of it is, is that my dad was native German. He escaped from Germany during the rise of Hitler and was a refugee in Europe for a long time before coming to the United States. But I was aware from a very early age that his connections with other people were different. My dad wasn't like other dads. He didn't know about American sports. He didn't have close friends. He uh, was a very strong, very dutiful, kind guy. But he was different. And I wondered about that. That difference and how much of that is kind of like your inheritance, and because it the story had to do with, you mentioned the Third Reich as we were talking earlier, right? So there was something in there about you know how different am I and how come I have these different interests and all of that. I mean, when I when I was an adult, I began to have dreams about being chased by the Nazis.
0: Wow. Well. Yeah. Oh. Are you Jewish? Is he Jewish? What do you mean he is? No, no. Well, how does he, if he's German German born, what does escape mean?
1: Escape means you walk across the border when you're 18 years old, past a sleeping guard into Czechoslovakia, and then spend the next several years as a refugee before getting sponsored into the United States by some friendly people. Wow.
0: So why did he want to get out? Why well, wasn't he,
1: he a Nazi? Uh, I'm sorry?
0: Why didn't he become a Nazi? Why He wasn't he
1: want- a Nazi. He wasn't a Nazi at all. He was escaping Nazism. He was escaping the threat of having to join the German army. Uh, and also because politically uh, his group was targeted by the Nazis and they were mean and they would come around and interrogate and intimidate families uh, in a way that was very destructive and very, very scary. For what
0: was the name of his group that the Nazis were after them?
1: I don't know. I okay. don't really. know.
0: But he um, he was in some subculture in Germany that's right. yeah. that the Nazis came after or
1: targeted. Yes, targeted and, one of many.
0: And he thought that he he was afraid that he might be recruited into the gang,
1: for that. Forced into the gang, forced. and the other is the that his family could be targeted, brothers and sisters and uh, parents. And so when he left, he did not tell anyone except some folks on the other side of town where he was going. So he just disappeared so that they could never be interrogated and have to keep a secret of some kind.
0: Wow, so you grew up with this history.
1: That's right, I grew up with that story, see? And uh, so there was a sense of I'm not like these other kids, Uh, this story lingers in the background. And, and, and I'm different. I'm shy. I was incredibly shy. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that whole theme of shyness and difference just carried all through until I was in college. I was a senior uh, at Yale College. And uh, I woke up one day and said to myself, "I don't yet know how to talk to other people." Wow! So, what did I do? I yeah. went to I went to school to become a counselor. I mean, it's just ironic. Of course, I, of I'm course, a social you know?
0: I taught social work. Wounded healers. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. So that whole issue of speaking and connecting and building relationships, I mean, for me, it wasn't just about talking to other people, what the implication there was, is how do you build a relationship of trust? How do you cross those boundaries? How do you get out of your own way? So...
0: Well, I now I I kept thinking we need to talk about him first before we go into courageous messenger. Now I see why. This is absolutely we absolutely needed to have this background. Courageous messenger is about speaking up in the absence of complete trust. Yes. You had to learn to do that. Yes. How do you do that?
1: Okay. So there's the, there's the critical question about, you have to know that that's a direction for your own growth. I think at some level, at least for many people, two well, parts. I think that's important. You have to choose growth. You know, yeah. I, I have a friend who said don't, who
0: used to say, she no longer says this. I don't want to change.
1: Yeah. Well, so then you're, then you're who you are and there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's it. Okay. So go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to relate in addition to that. I had a very good boss when I was at the city of uh, Bellevue, where I worked for many years, where we did the sexual harassment prevention work. And he was, you know, he was very open. Uh, and some of the things that I learned from him is he was quite clear that you shouldn't be in a formal leadership role unless you can get feedback from other people. So that was one piece. And the growth piece was, from him was sometimes you just have to consciously choose pain if you want to learn if you want to grow you have to do some things that won't it's not uncomfortable it's painful <laughs> yes.
0: you are speaking my language so
1: yeah so there you are so the two parts here one part is deciding to cross a border cross that border at a particular time with a particular person about some particular issue so you have to decide that that's the first thing is just deciding to speak up. The second thing is how am I going to approach this? How You know, what are the skills involved in the actual conversation? Okay. Is?
0: Let's, let's make this very tangible. Just make up any situation yours, one of your clients, family or whoever make up yep. a situation and talk, talk us through that person.
1: Hmm. Well, let's see. Um, I have a client who is a a really wonderful, warm, smart guy (laughs) with an Asian background. And I can, and his first, what he would love to talk about with his boss is his career development and growth. Very honest thing about, you know, you've made promises about promotion, What's happening with that? Where am I really? And he absolutely wants to belong and wants to fit in and wants to cross that boundary. But he has a very hard time choosing to do that because the movie in his head, as he sees that roll out, uh, is not one that he feels he's capable of yet. So my client is is a, a really wonderful, uh, warm, smart guy (laughs) and uh, with an Asian background and he wants to talk to his boss about his own career development and growth. There's been lots of implications that he is going to move up in the organization but no detail, no continuing conversation. So what there is there is actually... One of the elements of fear that Kathleen and I wrote about way back when, yes. which is ambiguity. It's not that he's being treated harshly. He's just not getting any answers. He's That's not the getting any information. And this then becomes a prime mm-hmm. opportunity to project mistrust into the uh, relationship.
0: Yes, they're stringing me along.
1: Yeah. So uh, he is dealing with that. And as he's dealing with that, of course, he comes right up against his own conditioning, meaning what are the messages he's inherited that he's operating with today. Um, And those messages are, be really careful. Be really careful about sharing anything here. You never know what could happen. Are there people that look like you in this organization? If not, you're gonna have to be extra special careful about what you say and do. And
0: there's that Asian saying, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down.
1: That's right. And all that stuff about model minority, all of which we've talked through. uh, And so he's got that. And, you know, when you have it, it's not like you can just say, well, I'm going to dispense with all that conditioning. Now I'm going to go for it. You really have to put some time into thinking about how do I get past that. And we're not there yet. But what we are doing is working together to help him visualize a conversation he could have. And how would he do that? So rehearsing that very carefully, knowing what words he wants to say, what words he doesn't want to say, uh, being open and relaxed, not tense, not jammed up. (laughs) Right. Which is you know, always something I think people are nervous about is like I'll get there and I'll panic and something will go wrong and right. And uh, although we haven't started down this road, I want to work with him on what his contingency plan is. So he has the conversation doesn't go well the first time. What now? And okay, how so are that's, you gonna work?
0: okay, so you've gotten him to the point he's in the process of yeah. deciding yes to have the conversation. So, what would you advise him? How would you work with him on what to actually say? because I have clients yeah. in the same situation.
1: yeah, yeah it's well, a
0: very common situation.
1: yeah. well the first thing is to be uh tactful to enter the convert tactfully enter the conversation, but then be quite direct about it. So Bill, a uh, uh, made up name here, Bill, I want to talk to you about career development. We've had some conversations in the past, but I need to know where I stand now. And to be really quite direct about identifying what that conversation is and expecting, expecting that there will likely be um, a defensive reaction on the other side that might shut it down and being able to listen and empathize and repeat what's being said and then to continue in a nice way. And what you might include in that is what your real motivation is. The reason I want to talk about this is. And being able to talk about that reason.
0: What uh, would be a reason?
1: I believe in the work that we're doing here. I've put in many, many, many hours. As you know, I feel that I deserve a clear answer on where I stand.
0: I'm so glad you say I deserve a clear answer versus I deserve a promotion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's part of it. And, you know, I think that, and then you got to think about this as not I came, I told you, you didn't give me what I wanted and I dumped and ran versus let's have a dialogue about this. Let's just, let down our hair just a little bit here to talk about what's the truth what's really happening here
0: so the elements of a courageous messenger as i'm hearing it is the decision to even engage in the conversation yes the will the willingness to not be namby pamby about it so that you're quite direct the willingness to listen reflect repeat mm-hmm. To, so it's not a one-way conversation. The other person, you're allowing for the other person to respond. And uh, I don't want to say exit strategy, but w- what what if it doesn't go the way you yeah. want? Right. What's your default backup plan? Right.
1: right. Which might be, in this case, simply another conversation at a later time. It might be, uh, really focusing on whether I'm going to ever get what I want from this organization and making a choice about whether I should leave or stay. In this case, this is somebody who has a phenomenal future ahead and can go any number of places, although he might not see that quite yet.
0: So right. in, in the prep for this conversation, assuming yeah. the willingness, do you advise him to set up an appointment ahead of time to send yeah. paper? So yeah, really. Not paper. This is the land of emails, the right. digital age. But what what's the prep for that?
1: Well, uh, for sure, uh, setting a time with him alone uh, would be really important. Don't try to do this kind of stuff in a group, uh, but to make this a private, confidential more comfortable conversation, picking a good time, picking a good place. Do you, do you believe you can do this over Zoom in a remote way? Or would this be better over a cup of coffee or in, a, in an office? You know, those are all choices that I think we make. And it's about what you believe about uh, your receiver. Right. You know, what, what is that person's communication style? What do they like? What works for them? It's kind of how do I land in their airport?
0: And would you advise him to let the guy know ahead of time what this meeting is about or spring it on it?
1: No, let him know in advance, but don't allow too much time between uh, the uh, letting know and the actual conversation.
0: Okay, hang on a minute. I got something in my throat. Okay, I'm back.
1: Okay. So I think that the not too much time is because it may create some tension for the other person. It will. Yeah. Yes. And you don't want to have it all at once. You want to give them a chance to think through it and also uh, for yourself to continue to get ready. Uh, But it's important to give people a little warning about what you want to talk about. Otherwise, they really are caught off guard, and then you may simply get a defensive reaction, and then you have to start over. So,
0: okay, what does start over look like?
1: Start over might be let some time go by, try it again another time, and that and that again super variable gene. I mean, there's no one right answer to what that is, uh, depending on how the other person responds and what you know of them. Uh, again, there's kind of a issue of evidence here, if the person is uh, has a history of uh, repercussions, uh, it may go all the way back to rethinking, do I want to try this at all, <laughs> to, oh, I just caught Bill at a bad time. Uh, let's do this tomorrow and set up some time in a different way.
0: That's so, wonderful. So what are the scary things that people you wrote the book, The Courageous Messenger. What yes. are some scary things? One is asking about, am I even in the running for promotion? Yes. One of them.
1: Well, when you look at, I mean, when we talked to so many people before writing Driving Fear Out of the Workplace, we learned a lot about what those undiscussables were. Almost half of them had to do with management practice of some kind. The big taboo here is talking to managers about management uh, systems, actions, decisions, anything that could come back to that person. And the the largest area within that sort of global 50% was how my immediate boss treats me. So that that's a big source Undiscussability. If I feel that you don't understand me, you're putting me down, you're treating me in a weird way, uh, for whatever reason, all of that is probably the most the toughest stuff to work with. And what people said was, and because we ask them, why uh, are you scared to talk about this stuff? And the two main answers that came up is fear of repercussions, and the second thing was it wouldn't do any good.
0: I always, yeah, it wouldn't do any good. Why should I
1: bother? Why why bother? Yeah, and interestingly, the repercussions that we heard about with that sample, the number one thing was not "I'll get fired." It was "I'll lose credibility," and if I lose credibility, it'll affect my career and my capacity to survive, succeed uh, here. Uh, Over time. And then, like number three or four down the list is if there's a riff, I'll be gone. So, yeah, uh,
0: fired is not what I hear either. What I hear is they won't give me this opportunity, they'll give it to favorite child Bill.
1: That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. The number one issue that I heard as I was doing interviews is people being afraid of being labeled. You know, we work off stereotypes this is more of the negative assumption stuff and the number one i bet you can guess the number one stereotype that people are worried about if they speak up and it's not successful i'll be seen as a troublemaker you've got it we all know that word that is the line of the taboo troublemaker Yeah. So that's how conformity happens. That's how people are shut down and shut up is the fear that will be labeled in that way. And there are other labels in there. Not a team player, for example, is another yes. popular one.
0: <laughs> and then if you throw uh ethnicity or gender right. there Instant, you know, I'll be known if I'm a woman, I'll be known as the B word.
1: That's right exactly and those and those negative belief systems which reduce people and dehumanize them are exactly what's in the way
0: so where does the courage to speak up come from
1: that's a wonderful question some people that we talk to have been through very difficult experiences i mean i remember a Vietnam vet who said once you've been out on the firing line and you've got people shooting at you <laughs> uh, after that uh, somebody telling you you can't ask for a raise or to make a suggestion for improvement or even being berated by the CEO it's just not going to make any difference because you've already been survived being shot at But for and then there, I think there are people who just naturally feel like their honesty is acceptable just as it is and they're willing to go full. Yeah.
0: Back to the Vietnam vet. Yeah, When I was uh, pre-tenure, uh, a faculty member told me, Jean, uh, I contradicted a faculty member, a senior faculty member. Gene, you shouldn't do that. You know you're up for tenure. And I said, look, if I can survive <laughs> the segregated South, <laughs> I can be in an institution of higher learning and be told and speak my mind. Otherwise, this place doesn't deserve to be called an institution of higher learning. And I survived the South, I can survive.
1: That's right, that's good, that's good. I think it's it's a kind of a learning thing. If you take a little risk and that seems to pay off, then you take a little more and a little more and a little more and over time. And at some point, you do begin to absorb it into your identity that I'm a good messenger. Uh, and that then is a kind of a way of being at work.
0: That's wonderful.
1: Yeah.
0: Because what you're saying, I'm I'm picturing people listening saying, yeah, well, I'm not going to speak up. You haven't met my boss. But yeah. what you're saying is take it a, a, a bite size at a time. Just get in, the, slowly develop the habit and get That's the right. feedback as, and grow as, as you keep trying it.
1: Yeah. And I think insofar as you're comfortable And that you are expressing not only your truth, but care for the other person. You begin to have a, I mean, that's my story. That's the kind of the the gold in there is being able to establish a connection because you look and feel trustworthy. You're not, there's no hidden agenda here. Right. I believe in you. And here's why I'm telling you this. And, oh,
0: that's
1: and and if it is built into your identity, then you're actually serving as a change agent and a model for other people.
0: Right, including the person you're trying to get to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and others will see and hear about this. Oh well, Dan spoke up. He didn't get, uh, you know, they didn't kill the messenger, and you know that changed the way the meetings happen, and that's cool. There is nothing like a reward for speaking up like seeing change happen
0: right but what you're also emphasizing which i just love is that you can't expect immediate gratification you don't go into it expecting the person going to hear you and suddenly the world will open up and birds will start singing you you have to be prepared for a slow progression of change
1: That's right. And you have to be able to be as good a receiver as you are a sender in the process. Yes. You have to be available to the feedback that might come your way. So in the situation we were talking about earlier, if my coachee speaks up to his boss, he might learn something about why he hasn't been promoted. Yes. He risks that. And yes. if he can't respond to that, if he can't welcome that information in, then it's then it's a problem.
0: Well, this has been wonderful. <laughs> I, I, this has just been wonderful. So I'm trying to think. Uh, you have dropped so many great nuggets. I don't even know if I can summarize them all here without thinking about it. What would you say to someone who's listening to this and they're thinking of their boss or
1: another person,
0: another person who's not giving them what they want? Yeah. What would you say to that person?
1: I would say this is about your choice and your growth. That uh, the choice is really critical and that the more that you hone in on this as a challenge that's been placed in your path, and you take it on as an opportunity to become who you are meant to be, you might find an amazing set of rewards on the other side, but will it be easy? No. Will it take some time and effort and thoughtfulness and self-knowledge? and willingness to risk, absolutely. But it's up to you, it's your choice.
0: That's perfect. So many people think the problem is there to be a problem and you're saying the problem is there to be an opportunity for growth.
1: That's right, that's right. And we all need to grow. I mean, right now in this society, Man, is there a need for growth? <laughs> we are in such trouble, Gene. I mean, from my standpoint. It is. The cycles of mistrust here are just so enormous. Some of which, you know, replicate, go right back to that uh, theme of oppression and authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the language that some politicians are using scares the daylights out of me. And just it's
0: accepted it's expected. Yeah, exactly. I, I i was astonished to hear someone say i i think i'm starting to favor authoritarianism. Oh. just some random person on the street yeah. who was being interviewed said i think i'm starting to favor that.
1: oh you <laughs> yeah how, this
0: how malleable we are as human beings.
1: oh And in this country, which is so focused on individualism anyway, we don't seem to understand the power of social movements that have at their base uh, targeting people and creating an enemy of some kind.
0: And creating conformity.
1: And creating conformity. That's right. So we have a ton of work to do.
0: We have a ton of work to do, and I
1: am so glad you're in the world doing it. (laughs) Thank you, Gene. It's been a real pleasure for me to talk so with you. And I hope should, we can do it again.
0: Yes. How should people get in touch with you?
1: Well, um, probably the easiest way is via my website, which is DanielOstrike.com. Okay. And, and I'm they, going to
0: put the uh, put it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. uh, so it's not a Daniel C, it's just Daniel Ostrik.
1: Ostrike, yes, just Daniel Ostrike. So D-A-N-I-E-L-O-E-S-T-R-E-I-C-H.
0: Okay, it's Daniel, not Daniel. Just
1: Daniel. Daniel. Yeah, I'm not, okay. it's not just Dan. Okay. And if you want to email me, it would be dan at okay. danielostrike.com. And I would welcome any inquiries. I'm happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk to me. So <laughs> there you go.
0: Okay. Uh, well, it's been a sheer delight. And uh, it seems like we came through similar paths in terms of of theory. I mean, yes. okay, so thank you kindly.
1: Thank you, Jean, take care.
0: Dan gave us so many nuggets in this conversation. The first point is that we respect people's dignity when we respect their identity. Now, people trash identity saying they create a lot of conflict. And they really do. I hadn't really thought about how so much conflict is really boils down to a clash of identities. One person's identity conflicts with another person's identity. What that statement ignores is that claiming you don't care what ethnic group or color a person is, you may be violating something that's core to their sense of dignity as an individual and as a member of a group. Now, the second point was him saying that he preferred the term dignity over the term respect. I agree with that. As I think about it, the word dignity reflects something that's more core and central to a person than the word respect. The third takeaway was about driving out fear in the workplace. He and I both agree, you cannot remove fear. What we can do is reduce mistrust. And the way to do that is to have the willingness and courage to bring up the very things that are generating mistrust. I'm aware this is more than a notion. It's scary to bring up stuff that's hard to talk about the undiscussables but if we surface the things that are hard to talk about, we grow as human beings. We become better people for having faced our fear and having taken a step to generate a stronger relationship. If we stay silent, we stifle our own selves and our potential for growth. That's all, glad you joined us. I'm Jean Ladding of Leading Consciously. Our next book is coming out in July, 2024. It's called Conscious Change, How to Navigate Differences and Foster Inclusion in Everyday Relationships. And if you're interested in any of our programs, go to leadingconsciously.com. You can learn more about Dan in the show notes below.